Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and welcome to Real Tuesday first Tuesday of the year. This is the week where everything gets back to normal, which I suppose means back to chaos, uh, cars on the road, traffic, children going back to school tomorrow, and all that that implies. And as is usual, it's almost like a, a ritual of the beginning of every year. The Gauteng Education Department has the a crunch with applications, last-minute applications for placement in schools. And as I recall, um, the department tried to make applications close on the 15th of December to avoid just the situation. But the Gauteng does have very particular problems with, with people coming over into Gauteng from other provinces some, and, and from Zimbabwe, some at a very late stage, and, and then seeking uh, for their children to be placed in school. So it seems that one cannot avoid that uh, that crisis that goes with the beginning of every year. Today uh, we have me. Um, my poor guest has been hit by internet problems caused by outages, etc., and all that that implies. So bear with me while we have a trip through the politics of the of the day. Um, and uh, it seems like. You know, South African politics has always got something to uh, to pique our interest, to annoy us and frustrate us and make us angry. And uh, somewhere along the line, we hope for a little hope. And we'll see if we can find some. To look at a few items briefly, we'll look at more detailed issues at a later point in the program. We have the case where I imagine... A soap opera could probably uh, be created out of this. The, if you remember, King Goodwill Zuelatini of the of the Zulu Nation died last year, and it didn't take long for the for things to to sort of be contested and argued about and in the media, etc., etc. Actually, he died in March, and his will named his wife Queen Mantpombi as regent. However, she died in April, and in her will she declared her eldest son, Mrs. Zulu, as king. Now it appears that uh, two applications have been brought to the Peter Maritzburg High Court um, for sort of typical post-will slugging it out, I guess. Um, The first matter has been launched by the late king's first wife, Queen's Bungile Dlamini Zulu, uh, whose aims to inherit 50% of the late king's estate on the basis that she was the only wife who, ma- who married the king under civil war. And she submits that the other five wives married him aware of this fact. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily makes them supportive of her claim to 50% of, of his estate. Nevertheless, supported by the late king's daughters, Princess Ntanyonkozi Zulu and Ntumbi Sutu Zulu Zuma, 
who are challenging the authenticity of his will, alleging that his signature has been forged. Now, that, that is a classic, classic case, and uh, both matters have been conjoined and will be heard together, so uh, we shall see royalty slugging it out in court, and uh, I'm sure some titillating bits will probably uh, will probably come out of it. Um, we shall see. Now, what happens north of the border is always uh, perturbing, particularly as it's usually a sign of the authoritarianism we've come to know since Robert Mugabe reigned as president and has continued unabated under his post-coup successor, President Emerson Mnangagwa. He has fired his state security uh, minister, one Owen Kube. Now, apparently, Kube was once considered a Manangogwa loyalist uh, and in charge of the Central Intelligence Organization, which a paper describes as the country's dreaded spy agency. And the CIO did have, has had, maybe I'm sure still does have, a reputation, a fearsome reputation for anyone who wanted to oppose the regime or could be seen as in any way tackling, taking on uh, the regime under either president. Mamangagwa says apparently that Ngubi has been removed from office with immediate effect for conduct inappropriate for a minister of government. I don't have an elaboration of what exactly that, that means, but it appears that Ngubi was... Uh, part of what's now become a, fact, a, a factional war um, within the party, within ZANU-PF, as, as it moves towards its 2023 election. Uh, doesn't sound terribly surprising. Ngube is apparently the fifth minister to be fired by Mangagwa since he took office, uh, after the tourism minister, the energy minister, the deputy information minister, and the health minister were fired. Um, so one has to give a bizarre credit to Mgagwa for at least firing ministers, unlike um, in South Africa where they where, where they are just redeployed. Um, in 2019, Mgagwa was placed under U.S. sanctions over gross violations of human rights. And last year, as recently as last year, the U.K. imposed sanctions against him and three other Zimbabwe officials of human rights abuses. So I... Knowing Mgagwa, I don't imagine that these people have, that Ngube was fired because he was bad at his job or uh, took an authoritarian and aggressive anti-human rights approach to his management of his portfolio. Uh, I, I'm sure it's, it's jockeying for position in the elections in, in, in the year's time. So nothing to be terribly surprised uh, to be Sorry, to be surprised there. There is a uh, debate, perhaps an understandable debate, that in, in light of the third test uh, test match between the Indians and the South Africans, and I think it starts today, that fans should be let into stadiums and that there's no reason not to. And uh, I think in the current... Uh, day and time, sort of circumstances, uh, really, you know, we can use all the distraction we can get. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Well, 
I suppose like a toddler or young child, the ANC has celebrated its birthday, its 110th birthday over the weekend. Uh, it's celebrates its birthday every year, and although it's presumed that the birthday celebrations and what is said at those celebrations and at the speeches is crucial to getting an idea of where the ANC is going before uh, the Lakotlas start and we move to uh, the State of the Nation address. I, I still, the very image of, uh, of a 110-year-old organization having an annual birthday, uh, a celebration every year of a birthday is, uh, uh, I think it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth, you know, the champagne corks, the cakes, and, and, and on this occasion, they released white doves. All I can say is go figure. I mean, Really, the, the ANC releasing white doves is, um, it's somewhere between kitsch and ridiculous. But be that as it may, uh, let's have uh, a look at the birthday celebration. It's obviously an opportunity for President Sir Ramaphosa to speak to the nation and to give the nation an idea of, of where it's going. Uh, which he did. Apparently, this speech went through 15 revisions before it was finally given. And I'm struggling a little bit to understand why, because what essentially Ramaphosa did was basically say, nothing much is really going to change, and we are going to revert back to our socialist roots. More specifically, he says that the party will return to and I quote, straight adherence to democratic centralism and, quote, revolutionary discipline. Working on the basis of past experience, I think the quest for revolutionary discipline in the ANC has has long passed. I think there are two problems. One is that whether the ANC likes it or not, it's not really in a revolution. You, you, you can't take a – you can't – call the constant governance of a democratic state over 20 years a constant state of revolution, even if this is what their doctrinaire position is as a socialist, uh, as a socialist party. Um, but it's quite interesting because if, if you look at the definition of democratic socialism, it, it essentially means having a socialist economy in which the means of production are socially and collectively owned or controlled well, owned and controlled presumably by the state because 58 million people can't own and control a system alongside a liberal democratic political system of government. So the essential idea, and I, I suppose ANC could be striving for this, is that it will, it wants to own the means of production, uh, to couch a Marxist cliche on behalf of the people but it will continue to allow a liberal democratic political system as we more or less have it, and uh, it's changing, but as we more or less have it at the moment. I, I think the, what's really coming out of that is all the, all the ANC is saying is we're going to continue to adhere to our ideology, notwithstanding its spectacular failure, um, but we'll try and be better behaved in uh, in, in managing the whole process, and particularly given the outcome of this Ondo Commission, which we'll touch on later. But this gives you an idea of, he, does, he gives an idea of what he means by democratic, um, 
centralism. Once upper structures decide on matters, whether right or wrong, lower structures must abide by that. Um, now, that's none of political parties may operate to a large extent in that way, because obviously running a party would, would otherwise be chaotic. But it depends really on how you create the structures and how they operate at the levels and how democratic and functional they are. And we've seen with much of the um, community-level, branch-level processes that have happened in the last few years that there's often a, 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 a near-fatal and often fatal consequence of there being one thing decided at a lower level and another thing happening at a higher level. Anyway, Ramaphosa said that this is how the ANC has always worked and a departure from this practice constitutes ill-discipline and that is what we must root out. Um, I would suggest that in light of the dreadful situation the ANC finds itself in, that it, it needs to try something new entirely. Um, we can hope, but uh, it, it seems unlikely because I think the ANC's, in, in reality, the ANC's prime motivation is keeping itself in power. And with that, every all attention constantly turns to within the to within the ANC within the party, where there are factional, uh, where there is a factional environment. In this situation, you've got what some people call the reformers of Ramaphosa on the one side and the radical economic transformation, uh, Magashule, Zumarites on the other side. Now, I think there's there's a bit of a myth in that. I I, I can't pretend to know the uh, the ins and outs of the factionalism within the ANC. But people constantly refer, and I've seen in a number of articles this week, to the, to the reformer Ramaphosa section, faction. But Zoro Ramaphosa is not a reformer. If he is a reformer, it's certainly, he's not a reformer in the classically liberal free market sense of the word. He is not doing any of the things that this country desperately needs to become a successful state. In fact, he only, he's only doing the, the opposite because it appears this year that they're going to have a, a real go with uh, expropriation without compensation. Um, and although the constitutional, although the, sorry, parliament didn't vote on changing the constitution, the expropriation bill is, is still up for comment and if it goes through it there is no doubt that the restrictions on property ownership that it would envisage would further discourage investors both local and and particularly uh, foreign and you will have heard it a number of times um, that the the other the, that the other thing they're going to really implement is is the employment equity bill because According to uh, the Labour Minister, self-governance has not worked in the private sector, so therefore the state has to enforce base, uh, uh, black economic empowerment provisions on the, on the private sector to get them to do the right thing. Now, this, of course, there are very million reasons for, the, for what is wrong with this, but one of the problems that I think is very little discussed is the fact that the... The, the black population, and I say African, Indian, and, and coloured, when, when I refer to the black population, 
is 91% of the population. So the population of the white population of South Africa is less than 10%. If a, if a country is going to be successful in the in growth and business and job creation, there is there is very little that I mean, it's just no way that the, the the white population can sort of can fill the positions that would be required and would be needed. It would naturally require the employment of black citizens, um, as as we know, millions and millions of of whom uh, need and deserve employment at this stage. So it it makes no. On, on, on another basis, it makes no mathematical sense, and the rigid adherence to, um, to to following the demographics of this country is just ruinous. Because people do not become uh, doctors or civil servants or cleaners or whatever the position may be, based on the, no one sits and works out how it's going to fit whether you have enough in terms of the demographics, in terms of the population. Is it national? Is it Worked out on a provincial basis, it's actually it's actually quite quite bizarre. And of course, the other thing they're going to look to bringing together this year is the national health insurance, which uh, is not only very bad policy, but it is beyond unaffordable, and it would require a civil a civil service, a, a bureaucracy larger than the size estimated at larger than the size of the existing civil service of the country. And it, it's you can just imagine. And the reality is, in order to become an NHR hospital, you have to meet certain quite stringent requirements, as, as, one, as one believes one should. And apparently only about 23% of state hospitals meet those requirements. So, again, one would plead with the government to improve what is there. A, a huge amount could be done if improvements are made both to the infrastructure and the staffing of existing hospitals, it is, that is not rocket science. Anyway, um, that will give you some idea of, uh, of, of where, the, uh, where the government's going. It's going to renew itself. It's going to create a plan for renewal, although how it's going to carry it out is, un, is unstated. Uh, to become uh, – it's, it's going to be a roadmap of vision for 2032, and there's some view view this roadmap of vision as really um, a legacy project for for, Ramapo- for Ramaphosa to achieve when he very likely starts his second term at the beginning of, of 2003 and 23. Apparently, the presidential address was almost 90 minutes long. Um, now he. He said, and again, nothing said, acts of ill discipline must be acted upon with immediate effect without any fear or favor. So he's, pro- he's presumably sending out a message that the, any factionalism, factual, factionalism within the party that is deemed to contravene the rules of the party will be dealt with severely and immediately. Um, well, I hope for their sake it does because we've seen through the step-down provisions and the time it took to get to the point where Ace Makashula was fired from the ANC took an enormously long time. So if, if that's anything to go by, unless they do speed up their processes, it's going to be sort of one person every 18 months, I'd imagine. Um, finally, and, the two, and I now connect with my next subject, is – 
Ramaphosa welcomed the release of the Zonda report, the first of three parts of the report, and uh, repeated the ANSI's promise that it would set up a mechanism to deal with members and leaders who are implicated in it. Now, here's a nice little ironic touch. Former Health Minister Zuelin Kize, who was, as we know, implicated in receiving kickbacks for inflated tenders, was at the birthday party and spoke in favor of implementation of the Zondo report. I, I imagine he would because I don't think the Zondo report dealt with him what he did happen to recently to be dealt with. Anyway, I, I think that, let's put it this way, the number of people that have already, that, that I think are being implicated already will require considerable work by the ANC in dealing with their own members and separately from what the courts will have to deal with uh, against ANC members and others as as these matters as some of these matters proceed to court. And I think one has to bear in mind about going to court is these are the problems are this. One is that criminal cases take time even in the best of circumstances. They take months to, to complete. Um, you've got a, a range of recommendations of people who should be looked at by the Zondo Commission for fraud or for corruption uh, or for bribery. And in, in other words, we, we wouldn't see a result anytime soon. But then you have the situation where you have a national prosecuting authority which is understaffed. It needs 88, apparently 88 lawyers who are experts in tax. Um, its, its funding has diminished over the last few years, and as someone pointed out, at the same time, however, funding for VIP security has um, has increased. So priorities, priorities, guys. And it also has within it people who are still part of the faction that that worked under Zuma to disempower the NPA. So it is literally. I would, I was going to say it, it is trying to bring criminal prosecutions with one hand tied behind its back, but I think it's a, it's metaphorical, it's metaphorically two hands tied behind its back. And that cynically might be what, uh, what, what the ANC is relying on to take an enormously long time for anything to come through the system, um, because the NPA is struggling to deal with what it's got before it deals with the, the myriad of matters that come through the Zondo Commission. What's interesting about the Zondo Commission is that it's, and, and, and in this particular report, it dealt with the, uh, the issue of the Gupta's newspaper, The New Age. It dealt with uh, the, the corruption, bribery, and extraordinary, I mean, almost unreadable, uh, of SAA. And it dealt with the destruction of SARS. Um, I haven't had a chance, I've had a chance to read parts of it and skim others, um, having been in much more pleasant, leafy green climes over the last week. But the, it's an interesting impression because the role of, of Jacob Zumerick is very, very clear. And I'll give you one example. Um, Temba Masuku, who is, was very respected CEO of the government's communication information service, GCIS, um, he was contacted by a Gupta, a member of the Gupta family to come and have a meeting in, at their home. He was a bit reluctant, but 
the, it was clear that it, you know, that it came on from high, that he should do so, and he headed off. Literally on his way to the Guptas, he receives a phone call from Jacob Zuma, essentially saying that he should, you know, he must meet with the, the Guptas, which he was about to do, and look favorably on their position and on their requests, and he trusts he can you know, can leave him to do that. Now that's an extraordinary situation because essentially you have, you, you don't have the president engaging with the, with the minister who's overseeing the GCIS, Collins Chavani, but with the actual CEO. So Zuma's imprimatur with the Guptas is clearly, clearly established uh, with that. And basically what the Guptas wanted was for Maseku to dedicate the whole of the GCIS budget, which I think was 600 million rand, to the new age. I mean, talk about being, a, you know, not not hiding your ambitions in any way. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary uh, situation, <laughs> quite unbelievable. Um, the The other thing is the evidence of Zuma's placing Dudumiyeni in as the chairman of the of SAA, which he was, you know, he directly had the right to do so, as he did, as he had the right to do so, in the case of appointing Tomoyani as the commissioner of SARS, um, and the. The, the uh, SA is, is, a, is a subject on its own. It's just so extraordinary. It's just so appalling. And the so, so this is a this is a real uh, opportunity. This is a real indication. You get the real sense of Zuma being behind everything. Um, and will and, and it, it's 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 sobering. It's absolutely sobering in that respect. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. What became apparent was Zuma's zeal to either appoint people in order to essentially siphon money out of tenders or, or contracts, etc., in the case of SAA, um, and putting a person who's entirely unqualified for the position in uh, would further destroy it already. Um, so it was either to gain a financial advantage or it was to ensure that the heat that was directed at him was taken off him. And in this respect, there came the appointment of Tom Moyani. And just to give you an idea of, of how deliberate and rotten it was at the outset, Moyani was promised the position of SARS commissioner by Zuba well in advance of his former appointment. And despite the fact that there was a process underway to select the appropriate person, or an appropriate person from amongst a large number of candidates. Um, this, and what I'm saying all is all part of the uh, record of the of the Zonda Commission, which is which is structured like a court record. It goes through the evidence bit by bit. Now, probably one of the most uh, uh, sort of distasteful aspects of the SARS issue was the international, the large, supposedly well. Uh, respected international uh, consultancy, Bain, um, their responsible South Africa re- representative met both Zuma and Moyani before they had even been appointed 
as third party consultants to, to restructure the, to restructure SARS. And again, it was obviously, obviously they, they would be given the position even though no tender process had, had even begun. So if you, this set the scene for everything that Moyani did in tearing down what he called the, ro- the erroneously and in the, in the, defamatorily, if there's such a word, the unit, the investigative units that he turned the rogue units, which would, which would be invested, which were investigating Zuma's taxes and investigating other links, the entire investigation network, which was a very professional one and uh, very well structured and, and long standing, was literally pulled apart. So we, in, once Boyani left and Zuma left the scene, we were left with no capacity whatsoever. Um, and basically, the, the purpose of, of Moyani and, and Bain was to literally, dis, literally dismantle, dismantle the uh, dismantle SARS, and it had been the successful government-run uh, body. And look what we ended up with. Um, Tom Moyani, by the way, did not give evidence at the uh, at the. Uh, um, at the Nugent Commission, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little confused with it, because the Nugent Commission looked into SARS as well, and I think he didn't give commission, didn't give evidence at the Zondo Commission, so uh, you can take from it, from that what you will. Right, and then, uh, look, let's, uh, th- we'll deal with the Zondo Commission on and off for the next few months, um, and I'll probably look to finding a guest who can give p- deeper insight into some of the issues. I don't know, this is very different, it just uh, strikes me because there was something absolutely horrifying about it. I don't know how many of you may have seen the video of the of the day trippers on boats in a, in a lake below a canyon in Brasilia, um, in, in southeastern Brazil. They were visiting a, a famous waterfall that that was tumbling into the lake. And at the moment when there were a number of boats on the lake, a tower, what they call a tower of rocks, suddenly broke away from the canyon wall and came crashing down, killing 10 people, uh, as far as I know to to date, and injuring 30 others. Now, the the, the video was an extraordinary sight. Um, You literally just saw, it was a bit like um, watching an iceberg crumble. You saw this sort of massive sheet of rocks sort of start to slide down and then, and this is probably what was most terrible, it didn't just slide down into the water, it started sliding and then it collapsed forward onto the water and, and killed people. So it, it was really the most, uh, the most awful thing, uh, the most awful thing to see. Um, I'd like to have a look at the pretensions of, uh, at, at this stage when we are assuming that uh, Sir Ramaphosa is going to be the president, the next, the re- next president, uh, he's, he's going to be appointed for a second term, which is probably quite likely. But probably for the umpteenth ter- time and on the 10th anniversary, the member of what we call ANC aristocracy, Lindiwe Sisulu, said basically through, made, this most extraordinarily weird press release, this statement, um, 
which appears to be a bid for the ANC, for, uh, for the ANC presidency, and hence the presidency of a country. Now, she's done it before, um, and she's she's, but she, I don't think she's particularly light. She's seen as haughty, and I, and I think it was the Daily Maverick who described her as a person with an impressive track record. It dates back to her training in Mkondwe Wusizwe as a cadre specializing in security. And that since 94, she's been a long-standing member of the National Executive Committee, started her role in government as Deputy Minister of Home Affairs, then Minister of Intelligence, Defense, Public Service and Administration, Human Settlements, International Relations and Cooperation, and human settlements, water and sanitation, and now tourism. Now, that to me is not the track record of, it's not an impressive track record. In 27 years going through umpteen uh, portfolios like this, suggests that you're not actually doing your job, and because you are ANC royalty, you're just being moved from one place to the other. Um, so we have this so-called impressive record, this woman running for as, as possible president, and uh, she then makes the statement, and this is absolutely extraordinary, um, she questions the import of the rule of law since apartheid and Nazism were also underpinned by the rule of law. Now, she clearly doesn't understand the difference between the rule of law and the rule by law. And the rule by law is what one can tag apartheid and Nazism as being using law to achieve the aims of government, whatever they, whatever they may be, and keeping people under control. The rule of law is where the, the law actually protects the ordinary citizen and, and other, and other players in society from excesses by the state. So, Impressive uh, uh, definition number one. She then goes on to deplore the sea of African poverty that persists despite the existence of the Constitution of South Africa, which she dismisses as a palliative. Um, now, our Constitution has been much lauded, possibly overlauded, <laughs> overlauded and overlauded, but a Constitution cannot resolve mass poverty. A constitution can assist to give people rights, which I would argue trying to give people the rights to uh, jobs and housing and employment and property and health, etc., is should not be a matter for the constitution, but that's an ideological debate. But even with or without a constitution, whether poverty is can be resolved or not, as or, Resolved, poverty can never be resolved. It can only be, a, it can be, um, diminished or ameliorated. Um, she, <laughs> you know, it is, it's entirely in the hands of the government. You do not need a constitution, good, bad, or otherwise, to ameliorate the effects of poverty on the people, to, to allow businesses to function and businesses to employ people and people to own property and improve their own lives. That has nothing to do with the, con with the Constitution. Um, 
So this gives you some idea of the possible competition that Sora Ramaphosa is up against. She, she's a smarter dresser. I think that's all one can say. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Just an interesting point that uh, Lindiwe Sisulu makes is she categorizes the impact of poverty in terms of Africans and others and not of blacks in general, which means Africans, colored, Indians, Asians, uh, or whites for that matter. And in this respect, there's a reflection of the race nationalism that the ANC has become very good at and is the hallmark of uh, of the EFF. I mean, you have to admire the EFF. They, uh, they essentially gave good... New Year wishes to the to the African population of South Africa last week. Um, uh, so that they're not pretending that they stand for anything that remote, remotely resembles uh, non-racialism or anything else. And I th- my suspicion is neither does uh, Lindy Wesusulu. Um, she's called for, or she's rather criticised the ANC for calling for a new Truth and Reconciliation Commission focusing on economic justice, but that the calls have been consistently ignored by those with the power to actually give effect to these calls. To these calls. Again, I think it shows an ignorance both of economics in general and the economic situation currently. Currently, the economic system is situation is very bad, and uh, there's not very, very much you can do with it to improve the the just, I suppose, uh, spread of economic largesse within the country. Again, as I said at the beginning of the program, uh, economic improvement and getting people out of poverty and getting them to advance their lives depends on freeing up the economy, not on grabbing hold of it and trying to divide it up and chop it up into little pieces and give it away. It isn't how it works, and it is that ideological blind naivety that's been proved wrong so many times in our history that it, it just doesn't uh, not in our history, in, in world history, that it just doesn't it, it, it's almost unbelievable but I think one has to believe it that an ideology can can persist um, despite all evidence to the contrary and, and, and I suppose that's the point where one has to the where one has to understand that, I, that political ideology can take on the qualities of religious adherence, uh, but in, in, in a in a more in a cult-like way, shall we say? Um, just to give you an idea of some of her further uh, further disregard of the relevance of the rule of law to democracy, Sisulu points to the situation in the United States where. Almost half the country voted for a man, referring to Donald Trump, who seemed to care nothing about democracy and the rule of law. At the deepest level, it is not very different from South Africa. Well, if you want to have someone as, as sort of well-informed and perspicacious and just generally uh, on top of things as Lindiwe, uh, as Lindiwe Sisulu would be, she is not the person to vote for. Anyway, we've come to the end of our hour and I thank you for being with me and uh, suffering through
my uh, thoughts and uh, comments on where we are at at the moment. Next week, I hope we'll have a internet-sorted guest and we can uh, get another view on different aspects that I've than I've than I've dealt with uh, today. So, with that in mind, please have a good week, and I look forward to seeing and hearing from you on Tuesday.